I want you to imagine that you're on your deathbed and you're surrounded by your closest uh, family and friends and one of them says, suggests that you pray. Now, I wonder what you would say in your very last prayer with your friends and your family. What would you pray for? Well, we've been looking at the book of John over the last few months at church, and we've been walking with Jesus for three years of his adult ministry life. And the last month or so, we've been walking through just one conversation that he's having with his 11 disciples. And that conversation is now over. And tonight, Jesus prays with his friends, with his disciples, one last time. It's the last time he'll get to pray with them as a group until he, res- he comes back. And so what does Jesus actually say in this last prayer with his disciples? Well, we see this prayer in chapter 17 of John, and it is a loaded and packed prayer. In fact, it's so loaded and packed that... Um, <clears throat> A Welsh pastor called Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 45 sermons looking at just chapter 17. Now, don't worry, we're not going to do that. We're going to look at it in two weeks. Uh, But the three parts of Jesus' prayer is that he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for the ones who will follow him in the future. That's us. Jesus actually prays for us. We're in the Bible. That's amazing. Now, to understand that prayer as a whole, we're going to just focus on the first part of Jesus' prayer tonight. And that's the prayer he prays for himself. And to understand that, we have to remember what he just said to them at the end of that conversation. He said that there'll be a time when they won't see him anymore, and they'll grieve bitterly. But then in a little while, they will see him again, and they'll rejoice, and their joy will be complete, and that joy will propel them through any hardships in life, all the way to the stars, to eternity. And after he says that, he prays. And we'll see three things tonight. We'll see that, number one, he actually prays. Number two, he prays for glory. And number three, he prays for eternal life. So let's look at these in turn. He prays. In chapter 17, verse 1, and just the first part of it, 17 verse 1a. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed. Okay, let's stop there. (laughs) Kind of weird. We just read half a verse. What's going on here? Well, we've got to take into account, why is Jesus praying? Because isn't Jesus God's son? Isn't Jesus God the son? Isn't he already intimate with God? Isn't he already powerful and can make anything happen? Why does Jesus need to pray? Well, for a whole bunch of reasons, but the two most relevant for us tonight is relationship and dependence. You see, Jesus is God's son. He's in the Trinity. He's in the Godhead. You can't get more intimate than that. But even though he's there, on earth he keeps on praying to God to keep the relationship going. As we look at Jesus' life all through the Gospels, we'll see that Jesus often excuses himself from the crowds so that he can actually pray to God, spend time with God alone. He needs to keep up this relationship with God. And in fact, later on, this author, John, will say in 1 John that actually God is a God of relationships. God is love. Now, what does that mean, God is love? Does that mean God loves us? Well, yes, it certainly means that. But what about before we were even created? Was God not love back then? Well, no, even before we were created, God is love. And so who did he love? He loved himself. Each member of a trinity loved the other members of a trinity perfectly. He was love in himself already. And when he created us, he extended that love to us. And Jesus 
now is relating to the Father in love by keeping him, by keeping a conversation going with him and praying to him all the time, even though he's intimately inside the Trinity. Now, if Jesus, who's inside the Trinity, needs to keep praying to God the Father, how much more do we need to keep praying so that our relationship grows with God as well? But the other thing is, Jesus shows dependence on God the Father. He's almighty God. He's God the Son. But yet he still prays to God and he says, God, make my ministries bear fruit. Now you think with that kind of power, he walked on water, he cast out demons, he wouldn't need to do this. But Jesus, although he's equally God, his role is a bit different to the Father's. And one of his roles is to do the work of the Father and to depend on God to make things work, to make things grow. And if the powerful Son of God, God the Son, needs to depend on the Father to grow his ministries, to make his life's work work, how much more do we need to commit things to God in prayer? You see, we do a lot of things uh, inside the church and outside church to help people come to know Jesus. Take that one step. It could be our children, our grandchildren. It could be our friends, our colleagues. And even inside the church, we do a lot of things to help our children and grandchildren and friends inside the church in our small groups grow in their walk with God. We do all of those things with lots of effort, but nothing will work until God makes it work. And so therefore, we need to commit these things to God in prayer. Uh, There's a pastor called um, Francis Schaeffer, and he says, what we try and do when we minister to people outside the church and also inside is to change hearts and minds towards God. And that work is a supernatural work. What we are trying to do here is not just difficult, it is impossible. And so therefore we must commit this work to God in prayer and watch him work through us. If Jesus, who is in the Trinity, has to keep up his relationship with God by praying, if Jesus, who is God the Son, needs to depend on God for his ministry to grow, how much more do we need to keep praying to God, to honour God, to watch our ministries grow, to keep up our relationships with God? Well, that's the first thing. The second thing is he prays for, for two things. He prays for God's glory. And we see this in verse 1b and also in verse 4. So cast your my, uh, eyes down to the second half of verse 1. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Jesus says, God, glorify me, glorify the Son. And on first reading of this, I thought, well, is Jesus being a bit arrogant here? I mean, all through his life we've seen him being such a humble guy, and suddenly in his last prayer with his disciples, he actually turns a bit and becomes arrogant. Well, is Jesus becoming arrogant in the last bit of his life? Well, no. See, for arrogance to work, two things have to kick in. Uh, First of all, we must be trying to claim some sort of credit, which isn't ours. And is Jesus trying to claim credit for something that isn't his? He's the best human being that's ever lived. He is actually God. If anyone deserves glory, it is actually God. It's actually him. So he's not so much being arrogant. He's just saying, God, show the world who I am and let the glory follow. The other thing with arrogance is oftentimes we're arrogant when we sort of take something special about ourselves and use it to lord over other people. Right? Let's just say we have uh, some sort of mathematical, scientific way to work out who the best guitar player is in all of St. Andrews. Okay, so we run into the computer and it turns out to be you. You're the best guitar player in all of St. Andrews. 
And so we come up to you and we say, hey, Bob, Jane, not Bob and Jane, no. Um, you're, you're, the best piano, you're the best guitar player in all of St. Andrews. And you say, oh, no, 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 I, I can only you know, play a few chords. I'm really not that familiar with music. Well, that's not humility. That's false humility, isn't it? That's actually an outright lie because you actually are a very good guitar player. No, what arrogance is, is when you take that and say, whoa, now that I am the best guitar player in all of St. Andrews, go and get me a coffee or go and polish my shoes. You see, that would be arrogance, wouldn't it? So let me encourage you, if, if you are the best guitar player in all of St. Andrews and someone says, hey, you're the best guitar player in all of St. Andrews, then just say, yes, I am the best guitar player in all of St. Andrews and now let me serve you with this greatness, with this gift. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I am the best, I am the greatest, I am God. Now let me use all that to glorify the Father and also to serve the world. That's what Jesus is doing. Now, how does he do this? Well, the clue is in the word at the beginning of his sentence. Our. Father, the hour has come. Now glorify the Son. Now, if you've sort of run your minds back over the months that we've been doing John, you remember this word hour pops up quite a few times. Right? All the way back in John chapter 2, where Jesus is at the wedding feast of Cana, and he says, my hour has not yet come. Later on, in the festival of the tabernacles, he says, my hour has not come. In chapter 8, in the temple courts, they're about to arrest him and kill him, but they can't because his hour has not come. But in chapter 12, Jesus says, the hour has come. It has come for the man, son of man, to be lifted up. And lifted up onto what? A podium, a grandstand to receive adulation and applause? No, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be lifted up and crucified on a cross. Jesus is asking the Father to glorify him, to show the world who he is, so that he can glorify the Father and serve people as he is lifted up and placed on a cross. Jesus' prayer for glorification is a prayer for death for us. And all through the Old Testament, and this is also that he can glorify the Father. Now, all through the Old Testament, the people of God have been told to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. And later on in the New Testament, Christians will be told, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Jesus completed the works his Father had given him so that he could honour and glorify the Father and serve us, and he calls us to do the same. Now, if God the Son, the Son of God, has, does that to the Father, how much more do you and I need to be doing it to the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father? And we do. A lot of us serve God very well, both inside church and outside church, but all of us hold something back. We don't do it with all our mind, soul, heart, and strength, and we don't do it all the time. Now, why is that? Well, I suspect it's because while we do love God, we want to serve Him, we also still want to be a little bit in control of our own lives. We're actually a little bit like my friend here, Ernie. Now, Ernie is like one of us, and he's just driving along in life. Right? Just driving along in life, happy, happy, driving along. And suddenly he meets Jesus. And he goes, oh, Jesus, 
be my Lord and Savior. Come in, get into my car, and let's drive off together. So Ernie's driving off, and he's enjoying life. And then, eventually, of course, life kicks in, doesn't it? This guy has to get a degree, and then he has to find a girlfriend and get a wife, and then he's got to make his uh, career really take off, and then he's got to start a family, and then he's going to look after his parents, and he's going to have to enjoy his leisure time activities, and his car is getting a little bit full, and he's driving around, driving around, and after a while, the car is just so full, he says... Jesus, do you, mind, do you mind just getting into the, the boot? So he puts Jesus in the boot of his car and he keeps driving along with all of this stuff he's got with him until he hits a pothole, stops the car, gets out of his car and says, Jesus, come out and do your Jesus thing. So Jesus comes out, does his Jesus thing, goes, thanks very much, Jesus, gets back in the car and keeps driving and driving and driving until the next pothole. Now, Ernie, that's not the way to be a Christian, is it? It's not the way for Ernie, and it's not the way for us as well. And it certainly wasn't the way for Jesus. Jesus did everything the Father asked him to do so that the Father could be glorified. Now, what was Ernie's mistake? Well, Ernie's mistake was to put Jesus in the boot. (laughs) That's a big mistake already. But Ernie's earliest mistake was to actually say, Jesus, get in the car. Come and sit in the passenger seat and come with me as I drive through life, carrying all my stuff. What should Ernie have done? Well, Ernie should have said, Jesus, come in. You take the keys. You drive. I'll sit in the passenger seat. You lead me to where you want me to go. You lead and I'll follow. Ernie should have done that. And that's what we should be doing. And that's what Jesus did. He did everything the Father asked to glorify the Father. And if a son of God does that to the Father, how much more do we need to be doing that to glorify the Son And the Father as well. Well, the passage moves on. And the passage moves on to Jesus asking for eternal life. We see this in verses 2 to 3. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life. Not that they know you, that, that they know you the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus glorifies God by dying the cross in order to give eternal life to the world. Now, what exactly is this eternal life? Well, some people think, well, it's, it's long life. You know, maybe uh, if, you're, if you're visiting church, you've heard of this uh, eternal life thing before, and it, it just, you've heard it means that Jesus, when Christians die, they go to heaven, and they just watch a clock spin forever, and they're on a cloud, and they're playing harps, and they just live forever. Now, uh, that might be true. There's an aspect of that that's true. I don't know about the harps. I hope not, because I, I like harps, but I'm not a massive fan of harps. So I hope it's not just harps in heaven. But it is true that eternal life lasts forever. But Jesus says eternal life is more than just life that lasts forever. It is to know the Father and the Son now. It is life to the full. Now, we have a lot of different types of life on earth, don't we? I mean, we, there's, a, there's an orange here, if you can see it. And I, have, I still don't know if it's, it's alive or dead. Um, I understand it's still alive. If there's any sort of biological people in here, maybe tell me afterwards. Uh, but this orange is alive, or at least it was while it was still hanging off a tree. But it's 
quality of life is pretty poor, isn't it? I mean, this orange is not going to go to university, he's not going to get a girlfriend, he's not going to have children, he's not going to participate in great leisure time activities, but he's alive. So poor orange. He's alive, but it's a form of life. It's not a very good life. There's other people who are tragically are stuck in hospital in a coma, and they're alive too, but their quality of life is not fantastic. But for all of us, we walk around and we have fun with our friends, we pursue careers, we watch our children grow up and pursue their own lives, and we think this is really good. And it is really good. God's blessed us with so, such rich blessings of life. But Jesus says there's something even better than even that, and that is to know God in this life and to know the Son, to know the guy who created the universe, who created you, who sustains you, who loves you, who knows what's best for you, who sent his son to die for you, knowing this God is so good that even all the good stuff of this life pales into insignificance compared to that. That's the eternal life he wants for people. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with this quote from C.S. Lewis, the writer of Narnia. He says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on a making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis is saying what Jesus is saying. This life is fine, nothing wrong with it at all. But we have an opportunity for infinite joy. We want to grab onto that. So if this is something new for you, then please stick around and ask questions about this infinite joy and indeed come to the life of Jesus as well so you can hear more about this infinite joy. This life is good, but there's something even better that Jesus died on the cross to give us. But for those of us who are Christians and we've been Christians for a while, we know that. We know that real joy, real life is to be knowing the Father and being known by the Father. And we feel that way at church. Right? We sing and we feel great, we feel powerful, we feel courageous and we pray, and we hear a talk, and we read the Bible, and that's great at church on a Sunday night. But when you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school pickups and drop-offs tomorrow, when you go to your social activities tomorrow, we don't feel that strong, do we? We feel in minority. We feel insignificant. We feel irrelevant in the world. And reading a prayer like this reminds us what Jesus thinks of us. You see, he wants to glorify the Father, and he does it by offering eternal life to people so that we can know God. In one very real sense, we who know God are the glory of God. This is the way that God, Jesus glorifies the Father, by getting us to know him and believe him. Many hours ago this morning, the sun rose over the international dateline. And people who knew God, because Jesus glorified the Father by letting them know God, went to church in the Pacific Islands. Now, to the human eye, it's no big deal. But with God's eye, in the cosmic scheme of things, these were flashes of glory glowing up to light up the sky. Later on this morning, the sun rose over the eastern seaboard of Australia. And our 8 o'clock and 10 o'clock congregations came to church, and flashes of glory went up all along the east coast. And as the sun continues to move across the, the planet, our brothers and sisters in Asia are waking up and going to church. Flashes of glory. Then in India and Africa, flashes of glory. Around to Europe, flashes of glory. To the Americas, flashes of glory. People who know God because Jesus glorified God by revealing himself to them. 
we are not weak and insignificant and irrelevant. We are, in one sense, the very glory of God. We are the way that Jesus honoured the Father. And so let this joy, let this courage propel us into a new week so we can go out there, serve our communities, love our communities by bringing them the love and the truth of Jesus. Well, tonight we started off looking at the first part of Jesus' prayer and we saw that, first of all, Jesus actually prayed. And if a son of God needs to pray, how much more do we need to pray? We saw that God, Jesus, gave glory to the Father by obeying everything that he asked him to do. And if a son of God obeys the Father and gives him glory in everything, how much more do we need to give glory to God, the Father, and the Son in everything? And we saw that Jesus gives God the glory by actually calling people to know God. Will we remember how important and how precious we are in God's sight? And will that propel us into a new week, ready to serve our communities by sharing the love of Jesus and the truth of Jesus with them? Amen.